Hello, and welcome to The Overtake. I'm your host, John Bazella, the President and CEO of the Alliance for Automotive Innovation. This podcast is about the automotive industry and all the people, events, and policies that shape it. Today, we're going to be discussing some history in the making, the auto industry's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Like many sectors of our economy, the auto industry took an extraordinary hit as the global COVID-19 pandemic swept across the country in March of 2020. When the pandemic struck, the industry's focus was on the health and safety of its employees, customers, and communities. Sales dropped dramatically, and for the first time since World War II, auto production across North America stopped. Beyond that critical initial response, manufacturers and dealers moved quickly to innovate and to do more to help the country respond. And in many ways, the business changed. In fact, there's no doubt today's industry is different as a result of COVID. But how much of this is permanent and how much is just for now? That's something we'll get into today. To help us understand the industry and the pandemic, I'm pleased to welcome Mike Stanton and Liz Reichertz. Mike is the president and CEO of the National Automobile Dealers Association, which represents around 17,000 dealerships that sell cars and light trucks across the country. And Liz is vice president of external affairs at General Motors and played a critical role in coordinating the company's response to the pandemic. Mike, Liz, welcome to the overtake. So I want to start with the beginning because it's always a good place to start. So um, Liz, take me back to whatever you felt was kind of day one of the pandemic at General Motors. What was happening uh, and, and and what were those initial discussions like? Wow. Yes. In, in the beginning, we were all trying to understand what was happening and how big it really was going to get. Um, and I don't think any of us knew that at that point. As a global company, clearly we were tracking the movements of COVID-19 starting in China and then around the world. Our priority was always the safety and is always the safety of our employees and our customers. We put protocols in place quickly, um, and we worked closely with the dealers to support online sales and enhance cleaning procedures so they could continue serving our customers. But it really was about a year ago today almost that the Detroit Three came together with the UAW and made the really difficult decision to voluntarily shut down production, which you can imagine it it was truly um, a deep discussion, but trying to do what was best for our employees. And so we shut down right around March 18th. And at that point, we were saying maybe shut down through end of end of March. And week by week, we would do an analysis and see where we were. We didn't realize, of course, at that point, we would be down for three full months. So we really didn't return until May 18th. And I think we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but the restart went very smoothly due to strong teamwork and very comprehensive safety procedures but it was really an amazing time. Yeah, extraordinary. No question about it. And I do I do want to get into kind of the restart and also kind of what was happening between the the initial shutdown and then the restart. But but Mike, um so what's happening at this point in the marketplace? Um you know, there we're starting to see at this point uh, as Liz talks about mid-March um 
uh, shutdown orders and stay-at-home orders rolling across the country? What was happening to vehicle sales and what were dealers doing? You know, John, dealers like all of us were, were very concerned. They were concerned about their safety and they always think about their employees. So they were, were worried about their employees and their customers, but they were worried about their businesses as well. You know, the employees rely on the income and most dealers had millions of dollars sitting out there in new and used vehicle inventory and in parts inventory. And they were worried that it was just going to continue to sit. And, and if they couldn't sell it, then, then that, that led to concern about, about being able to, to stay in business. And, and they looked to NADA uh, to provide guidance. And that, that's what we try to do. We try to support them as best we can and, and navigate uh, all that information coming from the, the CDC and coming from the government. There was just so much uncertainty out there. But one thing you can count on dealers for, it's just an unwavering persistence you know, to take care of their employees, their people, take care of their customers. And they wanted to stay open. And they, they recognized and they, they leaned on NADA and their local, you know, state and local trade associations to make sure they could stay open so that they could provide that service that was so needed for, for our essential uh, workers. You know, they needed reliable transportation to get to the hospital and to get to the, the fire station or the, the police station, the, the emergency, uh, all the emergency and preparedness workers. They, they, they rely on dealers to, to keep, to keep, uh, you know, to keep on the road. Right. And, you know, it is interesting. I mean, I, I mentioned when I introduced you that you represent 17,000 dealers that sell cars and trucks, but the fact of the matter is they also service them. And so, you know, you make a really interesting point that, that during the pandemic, essential employees still had to get to work. And so, I would imagine your dealerships were trying to stay open to service those communities as well, right? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Cars, cars is, I mean, they're, they're so good today, but they still break. And, and we still get in accidents. Um, leases still uh, are, are, are come due. And, and dealers need, needed to be open to make sure that, that they took care of these situations and, and were able to keep people in, in reliable transportation to keep them, keep them moving. You know, Liz, when we, you sort of look at that period when the uh, industry is shut down, that three months, um, in addition to working through the health and safety concerns of your employees and your customers and your communities, um, you know, it, you also made some other decisions about how you could help the country. And I'm just wondering what when was the what was the first conversation that you remember when somebody at the company said, "Hey, wait a minute, we can do something to help here." Um, what was that like, and how did that become General Motors' response to the pandemic? Yeah, thank you for asking that question, John. It was right in the beginning, and I think you know I'm from Michigan, and I've, admir I've admired Mary Barra long before joining General Motors, but I think you'll agree, crisis reveals character, and our leadership team from Mary on down not only stepped up, but really pushed the company to think about what could we do to truly help the nation when we are really facing a massive 
challenge. And one of the great advantages about General Motors is our manufacturing expertise and our ability to scale. So in the wake of COVID-19, General Motors became, as we like to say, an arsenal of health as we shifted manufacturing operations to produce ventilators and, and masks. So really what happened is that the leadership told us to do whatever we could do to, to get it done. Our engineers, uh, our manufacturing team really came together to do amazing things and started working on um, and looking online too, right? And talking to others to think about how do we actually make personal protective equipment, PPEs, and started coming up with gowns, face masks, face shields. It was really amazing. And I'm very proud to have been a part of that and really working with the company so that they could connecting with the right officials at FDA, CDC, FEMA, the White House, to make sure that we were making them in the right way, to make sure we had the right instructions, the right labeling, to get expedited waivers, um, expedited approvals, so that we could move forward. And it was, it was really exciting in a time where there was so much uncertainty. It gave us a purpose. It gave our employees a purpose. Yeah. You know, I love that phrase, um, arsenal of healthcare because, um, you know, it, it does harken back to that sort of arsenal of democracy, World War II response when we saw, well, I, I shouldn't say we, I'm not quite that old, um, but when the nation saw General Motors and other companies respond to uh, the need for uh, 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 a war response. And so, you know, this does sort of echo that in, in, in many ways. And I guess in addition to the work happening in the company, how important were, was General Motors supply chain to that effort? And, and, you know, you know, we, we, we should understand really to some degree better than we do maybe the scope and scale of a company, the size of General Motors and what you bring to bear on a challenge like this. Yeah. The supply chain played a really critical role and and it really relates back to the ventilators. You know, we didn't know how to build ventilators, but we saw from the global media coverage that there was a very serious shortage. And Mary Barra had a conversation with a representative from an organization called um, stopthespread.org who said you should really talk to Ventec. Um, and so the the very next day, uh, we were on the phone with them exploring how we could help. And that became another a mantra of ours, one month, one team, one mission. So in one month, the teams went from an introductory phone call to delivering life-saving technology to the frontline medical heroes. And we did that through the support of our supply chain. We had such strong and do have such strong relationships with them that we could take the ventilators apart with all the pieces on the table and have the experts in our supply chain start looking across the globe to come up with all of those parts and bring them together so that we could actually make these critical care ventilators there and, and wound up to be in, in Kokomo, Indiana. And just to bring some scale to it, before uh, working with GM, Ventec was making at about at most about 250 ventilators a month. And at the end of the time frame that we worked on these ventilators, which was about 154 days, um, I shouldn't say about, right? It was exactly 140, 154 days. We made 30,000 units. So it was pretty amazing. And we could not have done it without the, the support and the help of our supply chain. 
Yeah, that's extraordinary. And Mike, when we think about the retail side, there were innovations happening there as well, right? So, you know, you talked a little bit about dealers needing to be able to respond to be able to sell and to be able to service during the pandemic. But but what were dealers able to do um, to be able to continue to do that while ensuring that customers were safe uh, and that employees in the dealership were safe? Well, a couple of things. I, I couldn't have been more proud to be part of the industry mm-hmm. and and to see what, what General Motors were, were doing. I mean, here we were pitching in as an industry to to help what was what was most important and then dealers at the same time you know they are are super su- supportive of the communities where they serve and you know often often step up to the plate and are very very generous and we we heard dozens of stories of dealers offering to sanitize vehicles for free they were lending vehicles to people that needed them they were offering free services we even heard one story of, of a dealership being an overflow uh, area, uh, actually used, used the store for a hospital that, that had too many people to take care of. They were running child care centers if, if that was necessary. They had teams out there running errands, getting groceries for the, for the elderly, and they were doing all this for free. They had food drives, offering uh, free Wi-Fi. The list goes on. So while the manufacturers were... We're doing the, uh, their part on a very large scale. The dealers were also pitching in, you know, in their local communities to try and keep keep people uh, keep people safe and and keep them from going hun- hungry and really just doing the right thing. It really was a team effort uh, with with our our car company partners. But you know, they also had to change the way they did business, and and they <laughs> the dealers are a very very nimble group. And if you, if you, they, they can turn on a dime, which has always been uh, fun to watch. We put some guidance out on how to run a dealership in, in a pandemic. We, you know, we surveyed this, uh, all the, the data that was out there and, and we, we tried to put something together. But before that thing even hit, hit the printer, dealers were already changing everything and figuring out, out a way to con- conduct business in a very safe uh, manner for both their employees and, and for customers. And they, they did it, John, they did it overnight. It, it was very, very kind of cool to watch and be part of. Mm. It really, really extraordinary. Um, what, as you look at some of these, these new ways of doing things and, and Mike, let's stick with you on this. Um, how how many of those kind of new ways of doing business do you think will outlive the pandemic? And, uh, you know, so for example, some of the, you know, uh, dealers shifting to online sales and being able to make sure that customers were able to uh, 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 do as, as you said, as much of the purchase process as they could online, making the uh, the the experience uh, uh, more pandemic friendly, let's say. Um, how, how much of those types of things do you think will continue um, beyond the pandemic? Well, you know, COVID nineteen has been so horrible in so many ways, and no one would would trade kind of the positives that we learned about our business versus all of the the deaths and devastation. But you have to focus on the positive, and you know. The, True to the automotive industry, we use the crisis to get better and to make ourselves stronger. 
And the first thing you do in a crisis is you watch your expenses more closely, which we should be doing every day. But in good times, we tend to get lazy. And I think that that a crisis will, will always bring discipline to to a business. But it it forced us to kind of do some of the things that that we we knew we should be doing, and some dealers were doing. But it, it forced the laggards to to accelerate some of the retail processes that were were quite frankly overdue. I mean, customer preferences are changing, and we've got to continue to evolve to meet those those consumer demands. And, and we'll probably talk a little bit about digital retail later, but this, this pandemic just turbocharged our, our dealerships to, to meet their customers where they wanted to be met. And that could mean 100% online, 100% at the dealership, where for most people, it's a mix of, of, of the two. And, and we didn't have a choice. We had to get there and get there fast. And, and we did just, just that. Mm. Liz, um, I want to come back to the manufacturing and production side of the business now. Um, so, so I want to go back to where you left us um, in, you know, sort of late March and into April. Uh, everything's shut down. It's this incredibly complex manufacturing machine, right? With tons of moving parts. There's there's suppliers, you know, and a very, very complex global and regional supply chains and uh, parts of the vehicle that show up at the assembly plant right at the point of fit, just at the point where the vehicle needs them. And so this whole thing got shut down. And so restarting it must have been an extraordinary challenge, making sure that that the supply chain could come back you know, in some sort of way in which it would be synchronous again, for example. Tell us a little bit about what the restart was like and and how you think it went. And if you felt like it went well, why? It, I do think it went well. I think it went really smoothly. There were obviously huge challenges. And as we've talked about, we have a massive supply chain that is really challenging. And the states and localities, right, there wasn't an even, um, there weren't even rules across the board. And so we were dealing with different areas that could come back first ahead of others from the supply chain perspective in particular. And so we did have to work really closely with our teams across the United States and, and the supply chain to make sure that we could make that happen. And there were certainly um, issues that we dealt with, not only just from the, the U.S. perspective, right, but in terms of when our other sites and our other supply chains were coming back online, Mexico being a good example, right, in terms of needing um, different parts coming in from Mexico for the entire auto industry. But we certainly worked through that. And I think for us, the biggest key was ensuring that our employees felt confident to come back to the workplace. And, a, and, and for us, of course, the health and safety of our employees and our customers remains our number one priority. And it did for that time frame, of course, as well. And so in order to return to the workplace, we really had to ensure that in the workplace, we were living by the values that we're going to return people home safely, every person, every site, every day. And we leaned heavily on our uh, chief medical officer, Dr. Jeffrey Hess. We do have a chief medical officer at General Motors, and he's really amazing. And he helped to put together really strong guidelines 
and guidance, which actually turned into a safety protocol playbook. So a COVID-19 safety protocol playbook that was really um, focusing in on cleaning, protective screening, safety entry procedures, mandatory face mask wearing, of course, safety glasses, physical distancing, frequent hand washing, and, and more, which was reflective of the CDC and, and WHO recommended employee safety practices. And I think, um, you know, utilizing that approach, and if, if I may, just to share that we, we took that protocol and those best practices, and we shared it across industry. We learned from each other, right? From the other autos, we came together, we shared those protocols across the supply chain with our suppliers as well. Uh, as you heard Mike talk about, the dealers had already implemented a lot of different procedures at their sites to keep customers safe as they came in. And it was really critical, as he said, around being able to bring your car and get your car fixed when you've got to get to the hospital, when you've got to go get food, all of those critical basic pieces. So all those best learnings came into this playbook. And then we took it on what I'll call a road show. And we shared it with governors, with all kinds of policymakers, with congressional members. We utilized a business roundtable and we did a series there. We did our own protocol playbook there, but we also had lots of diverse industries walk through through their protocols. We were all dealing with the same thing, but in different industries. So, um, and we also, of course, working with our with our union to make sure that we were all um, doing it together and moving in the right way. And as I said, ensuring that our employees had the confidence to return. And the data has really shown that where our protocols are followed, they they are working. So challenging, absolutely. Do we still have challenges? Absolutely. But it, it really went um, smoothly. Um, I think and our, and our employees are feeling very confident. Yeah, that's great. You know, it, to, to, speaking of ch- existing challenges and maybe even some unforeseen circumstances that are the result of coming back online as uh, as the industry did, I think of two. One, um, Mike, maybe you can comment on, which is related to inventories. You know, it would seem to me that that um, with the industry having been shut down for the better part of three months. Uh, in the in the middle part of 2020, that you know, dealers, independent businesses buying vehicles to sell, that inventory got really tight. And I'd like to get your perspective on what that means in the marketplace. And then, Liz, another unintended consequence that we should probably talk about is the shortage of microprocessors that resulted from the pandemic. Um, and so, um, Mike, we'll start with you on you know, inventory, what, what, what was that like? Um, what was the impact of, you know, the, the tight inventories as a result of the shutdown and where do things stand today? Uh, yeah, Liz, I, I'm guessing you rarely hear a dealer say that I've got just the right amount of cars. You know, it's either I've got too many of these and they're not moving fast enough, or why can't you get more of those? Uh, and I've been in this, this game for about 30 years, a little longer, actually, and we've always been in a push market overall versus a pull. And that means basically that we produce more cars than consumers would typically demand. And that has both good effects and maybe some not so good effects on, on our industry and in particular our relationship uh, with customers. And dealers have had to adjust, as you say, John, to carrying 
less inventory, both both new car and used car. And this has been a fundamental shift. And <laughs> it's not one that, uh, that dealers have been very happy about. But at the same time, uh, that that does does some has some positive effects when it comes to to dealer profitability, uh, but knowing this industry like I do, I don't think it's going to be long lived. I mean, we've got the issues that you and I have talked about uh, re- regarding the chips and the the shortages. But once we get past that, we're going to get back into that push situation. So I'm guessing it's not going to last long. But in a way, we ought to try and enjoy it while it's here, if if that's possible. But it's always been one too few or one too many. Uh, never, never, never have we gotten it just right. At least not not in my experience. Right, and and Liz on the on the microprocessor shortage. Um, you, you know, I I it, at least from my perspective, I associate that with the pandemic. In other words, you know. Um, fewer vehicles being built, fewer uh, chips being uh, uh, requested. Uh, and then there's a mismatch in the marketplace. And so we're challenged by that today. W- what's your sense of what's happening there? And, um, you know, what's your, your you know, forecast for, you know, uh, getting through that? Yeah, it, it's a serious situation and it's having real impacts across industry, across our industry. In the beginning, when production was down, yes, there were less wafers. We need the wafers that go into the semiconductors and the semiconductors themselves. That quickly changed, though, and the orders went in. I think on top of COVID, what happened was, or on top of the production being down due to COVID, what happened was the desire for consumers, because they were home, (laughs) to have new TVs, to have the new iPhone, to have new technologies. And so at that same moment in time, the demand on the tech side went astronomically up. And then, of course, we had the situation with Huawei. So we were not getting semiconductors out of China. And so that had an overall impact in terms of what was in the marketplace. So you had a some supply impact going down, you had demand going way up, and now we're, we're seeing the impacts of that. And unfortunately, you've seen um, several in the auto industry, not just in the US, it's a global issue, having to shut in some of our manufacturing again uh, for, on a temporary basis. And we're working very hard, of course, once again, through supply chain, trying to increase um, the semiconductors, certainly for the auto industry. John, you know well that from a semiconductor perspective, auto industry is about 4% of the semiconductor market. If we even got another 2% increase, that would have a massively positive impact for us. And so we're, we're doing a lot of work, once again, with the U.S. government, um, with the administration, with Congress, in a bipartisan effort, uh, working with other countries that have the production there to try to increase and certainly prioritize U.S. autos so that we can get those vehicles on Mike's lots and get those to, to customers. So it, it is a really serious issue. Um, and I think that um, 
we'll get this resolved. But I think in the long term, it's not just about today. We need to actually build out that supply chain here in the U.S. further. And I think in the future, it will be more resilient and and much more flexible um, for us. Yeah, you make a really good point about the long term, right? I mean, we should almost step back a little bit. Uh, Microprocessors are essential in modern cars and trucks today, aren't they? And the reason for that is that these vehicles are so technologically advanced, right? Talk a little bit about, you know, what's driving demand for chips in vehicles today. Yeah, when you think about what a vehicle is, right, it's a computer on wheels today, and it continues to move in that direction further. So certainly for electric vehicles, for us, of course, we're moving very far down the road. We've made a lot of public commitments in terms of where we want to go from a vision of zero, zero, zero. And those vehicles need more semiconductors. When we think about the different safety technologies, autonomous vehicles, those need additional semiconductors. So this is going to be, the demand for this is going to increase. And and therefore, we need to really be planning this long term and working together as an industry to ensure that we've got the, the necessary supply chains built out. Yeah. So it's it's really about the digitization of of the vehicle. And and Mike, I, I want to come back to the you know digitizing of the sales process and the you know the 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 retail engagement. Um, you mentioned that a little bit uh, earlier. Um, so where is that going and where is the opportunity for retailers and technology really to continue to come together to serve customers? You know, I, I mentioned before, we have to be ready to meet customers where they want to be met. And I, I remember talking to a large manufacturer, it was not General Motors, uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, and less than a quarter of their dealers were engaged with their online, kind of their digital retailing tools. A month later, it was over 90%. So I, as I mentioned before, this this uh, pandemic, it, it it forced many to get on board with, with some of this. And and it's it's here to stay. It has to be. But, you know, I, I use a very simple example that if there are five steps, and some could say there are seven or nine or 12, it really doesn't matter. But let's just use an example of five steps to the sale between a consumer and a dealer. If a consumer wants to do steps one and two online, the dealer should be ready to meet that consumer at step three when they show up at the dealership. I mean, we need, we need to make sure that this is a connected experience uh, because that's what consumers want. And we can do it. The tools are out there to do it. We just need to make that commitment. And I'm pleased to say that most dealers have. And the ones that haven't just need to get moving. And we're, we're certainly uh, teaching that at, at our dealer academy. And, and we're fortunate to have so many software uh, providers out there that we work with that will help dealers enable to do just that. It's almost, there's so much out there. We, we try and help dealers sort through which, what, what is what so they can, they can plan accordingly. They can buy accordingly to make sure they, they can deliver on that, uh, you know, meeting where uh, the customer where where they want to be met uh, expectation, but it's it's here to say it's accelerated, and I think we're we're excited about excited about that as a retail industry. Uh, we had some catching up to do, 
but I, I think we're getting there. I know we're getting there. And, and that's, that's a good thing for us as dealers, for our manufacturer partners, and most importantly, for, for consumers. It, it, it is very exciting to see that innovation uh, and to see it continue. Uh, let me, I'm going to ask you to take your crystal balls out um, and you know do a little bit of sort of gazing into the near future. Um, and there's no wrong answers to these questions because um, I, I don't we, we can't possibly really know the answers to these yet. But you know there are certain trends that we've seen just in terms of how people move around. Um, how people experience personal mobility that have changed during the pandemic. Um, you know, we saw, you know, so many of us working from home and continuing to work from home to get, uh, uh, to, even as we speak. And so, you know, fewer people might be commuting to work by car. Uh, we've seen also um, mass transit ridership go down with public health concerns, despite the good work that transit systems are doing to try and manage that. Um, you know, we, we, where, where do you think these trends are going? Do you think that, you know, at some point when vaccinations have reached a critical mass across the country that, you know, we'll be back to way things were pre-pandemic and we'll all be commuting to work? Do you think it will be some combination of the old and the new? I mean, what's your sense about what the impact of the pandemic will be on personal mobility? Um, here in the United States. Liz? Yeah, it's a great question, John, as we think about the future. And I think Mike will attest to the fact that consumers are still absolutely buying vehicles. And yes, I think there's a reality, especially when we think about the Washington, D.C. area, about right now how many people want to ride the metro or are actually turning to their own individual vehicle to drive to work instead. I think it's going to be a combination um, as we move forward. And certainly once people are vaccinated and confident and comfortable again, doing the normal transit to work, they may go back to, to some of those um, old habits. But I, I think individuals love their vehicles. We've got really exciting models coming out. We've talked a little bit about our electric vehicle models that are coming. We've got 30 30 models that we'll be um, bringing forward that are going to be pretty exciting. Hopefully you saw our um, some of our ads during the Super Bowl that hopefully put a smile on your face as you think about that. You also know we're, we're working towards autonomous vehicles as well through Cruz, our partners there that would be also electric vehicles, but ride share vehicles. So we're thinking about this from a multitude of ways. And as we know, the world's always going to continue to evolve. And you're talking to, you know, um, with, with Mike on the phone with me here, the auto industry is always innovating, always looking to the future, always uh, looking to what is needed for, for our customers. And so we'll continue to innovate in that area. And I think we've got some really exciting things coming. Mike, what's your crystal ball tell you about uh, personal mobility in the United States post-pandemic? Well, my crystal ball is super hazy, but so is everybody else's. Uh, one thing we know for sure is that we are terrible at predicting the future in our industry. And as Liz has said, the key is going to be to stay nimble and ready to meet customer needs. You know, you think about ride sharing and autonomy, they were predicted to be much more of a force today than they actually are. 
And look, we're not a country of people that likes to share things. Uh, look at the trends in housing. People are investing in, in the places where they're spending most of their time. And, and the business is booming. The housing industry is booming with the remodels and, and people wanting to pick up and, and get into to better places. And I know it's different in different all people have different circumstances. But the bottom line is that business is, is booming. And so is personal transportation. I mean, it's done, we've done very well. Many are reluctant reluctant to get into a fully autonomous vehicle due to safety reasons. And then I just can't imagine right now uh, people wanting to jump into do these ride shares uh, with, with stranger germs all over them. And I'm not a ger- germaphobe, you know? So I think people are viewing their homes and their cars as, as kind of cocoons or safe places. And these are places where they, they want to be and they, they want to have, have uh, kept clean and have control over. And I've said it a number, number of times, we just want happy customers and we want to support the direction of, of our great country and the government. But we need to help shape the future because we as dealers are closest to customers. We're dealing with them every single day. Uh, we want to work, as we talked about, John, with our car company partners. But we've got to educate the, the policymakers and just make sure that, that all the facts are on the table and we have a well-thought-out path as, as we look to the future and, and I think we bring a lot of value. We just want to have that seat at the table so, so that we can, uh, you know, do what we think's right for not just for our business model or the car company's business model, but, but for the country and the consumer. So, you know, one big happy family, as, as you all know, we're, uh, we, we fight often, but I think at the end of the day, we want, we want the same thing. And that's a happy, happy customer. We want to make money. We want to sell lots of cars. Great. All right, I have one last question for both of you. And I want you to think for a second. What do you want people to know about this industry and COVID that they don't know right now? So even with the coverage that we've all seen, there's got to be an untold story that people don't fully understand at this point. So what is that story and what does it mean to all of us going forward? Sure. I, I was just saying, you know, look at what we can accomplish when we come together as an interest, industry and as a as a country. There were really extraordinary efforts from from everyone throughout our industry, all the way through from from dealers to the autos themselves, all the way through the supply chain, and we're able to respond to needs of the nation. Um, really very, very quickly, rapid, rapid speed, which, you know, we would call ventilator speed. Um, That means pulling together a team and breaking through barriers to get something done. This is something that will live with us um, now forever. And and it really gave us that purpose during an uh, uncertain and challenging time. And I think that um, we could always be proud of those efforts. And I think that really it will be part of history. And if I think about all of our employees that stepped up to volunteer. In 2020, we had over 5,000 GM employees who volunteered to make face masks. One of those volunteers, I'm going to give her a shout out, Katie Monahan. She's a manufacturing engineer who volunteered an additional 150 hours and made 40,000 masks herself. So, you know, when when we really want to get something done, I think we're a fantastic industry. And I think 
the other piece of this is just to say, you know, when we when we did pause production, our employees, dealers, suppliers, we all acted with speed and agility. And you you heard that from Mike too, right? And that speed and agility helped us support our customers and our communities as well to protect our business. And so with that same speed and sense of urgency, um, you know, we found faster ways to work and to speed up mission, mission critical growth businesses like our electric and self-driving vehicle initiatives. And so, you know, you can see that now with our accelerated pace of executing our EV strategy, but that's really what I want people to remember that, you know, ventilator speed, integrating the team so they can solve problems and making sure all the resources are there to, to help them not just follow the process, but to follow the speed and pace to deliver amazing outcomes. And behind all of that are our people and the amazing people throughout the industry. Mike, last word to you. Well, I like that last answer. I, I don't have as good an answer. Um, I, I guess what I'm thinking, though, is if we all love the car business. We, we remember our first car. There's something exciting about getting a new car. But when it comes down to it, we're in a people business, and we've, we've built great relationships, and the foundation of those relationships is trust. And it's amazing what we can do in a crisis and, and when there's urgency and if we could just act like that maybe a little more often and and stop fighting so much and and work with a common purpose because we've got the people that can do it it's a people business even more so than than the car business well liz mike it's been such a pleasure to have you on the overtake and it's been a really interesting look at one is what is clearly one of the industry's most pivotal times, not just for our companies, but for our people as well. And your perspectives really are interesting and your insight really shines a, a light on a lot of this. So thank you very much. 